I'm going to bring my coffee with me. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, or John chapter 14, sorry, verse 1. John 14. We're entering again today as we take the Lord's table to the very first sermon preached at the Lord's table. It was preached by Jesus himself. The supper is ended. Judas has gone out. And he has begun to unfold in the 13th chapter some very uncomfortable truths. Truths that are troubling, right? Uh, Points of trauma almost. That's the buzzword of our day is in the world of of, uh, mental health is to talk about trauma-informed care. Here I offer you trauma-informed care. What was the trauma of the... Well, the trauma was in chapter 13. He says, I'm leaving. That was uh, troubling. I'm going away. And you can't follow me right now. They relied on him for three years. They believed upon him. They trusted him. And now he says, I'm going away and you can't go. You can't follow me right now. And he said, one of you is unclean. In fact, one of you is going to betray me. And then he went on to say that none of you are able to stand. Particularly, he zeroed in on Peter who said, I'm going to die for you, Lord. And he says, you, you can't, Peter, because before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And another gospel said, and so said all of them. When he told them the The shepherd is going to be smitten, and the sheep are going to scatter. So this was a troubling message in chapter 13. Now enter the trauma-informed care of our Lord. As he begins his Passover sermon, let not your heart Be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there he might be, you may be also. And for another day, maybe next month, we will have verse 4. And whither I go, you know, in the way you know. I want to focus right now on the very first three verses. Like I said, this meets a point of trauma. He says, let not your heart be troubled, because there was already some very troubling truths that were set down by him in the end of chapter 13. So he begins this sermon 
shines into our darkness. Amen? And shines more and more into the perfect day. If you cannot be consoled by these words, and in the words that come to, from here to the end of chapter 17, I don't know what can, I can say or anyone else can say that can console you. There is a distributive application here. He says, let not your heart, so heart is singular, but the you is plural. It is you all, y'all in the Greek. (laughs) It's y'all. So we have a singular heart and a plural you being used. Uh, and being told in an imperative, let not your heart be troubled. So it is either meant to highlight the unity of believers having a, a one single heart, or it is meant to give a general application. It's something that would, it would be called a distributive use, where you could use a singular and a plural uh, together. The, the, so he might be saying it uh, like, this, uh, let each and every one of your hearts not be troubled. That's the distributive use, and it's a general application. It's therefore meant, it's in, in its distributive use, to be applicable to all who meet the conditions of believing on Him and believing God. And being the subject of the work that he is getting ready to unfold. So what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is simply this. This applies to you. This applies to your heart just as much as it applies to my heart. And if you're troubled here this morning, there's comfort here you can draw. The imperative then is ours. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be shaken. Don't let it be agitated. Don't let it be soon moved from its place. Don't let it be stirred negatively in your emotions. Don't let it be despaired. The one, by the way, Christ at this very moment was troubled himself. And, right? It says that in the end of chapter 12. And in verse, or not the end of chapter 12... But it says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. That's Jesus speaking in the same context. Now is my soul troubled. And now he's telling us, but don't let your heart be troubled. He's bearing our trouble. He's bearing our care. Cast your care upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. He is bearing the trouble that you and me may be free from the trouble. So, He is getting ready to give His people peace. In fact, in the same context in chapter 14 and verse 27, He tells us, Peace I leave you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, and so on. He is giving them peace. Anxiousness. Does anybody in here ever uh, ever have anxious problems with anxiousness? All right. Well, he's addressing your anxiousness. Anxiousness is made to stand in opposition to what Christ would have for us here. 
What does God want? What does Christ want for me? He would want me to let not my heart be troubled. From here, our Lord piles comfort on us. Why? Because He's the first comforter. And here He is playing the role of the first comforter. And if you look at how the entire text continues to unfold, what does He do from here? He's giving them comfort and He says, not only that, but another comforter is going to come and that comforter is going to abide with you and that comforter is going to continue to remind you of these things and the comfort is going to continue on and He will abide with you forever. So here is the pouring forth of comfort to troubled people, to troubled believers. And it's meant to be ongoing from this point forward. I want to give three points here in this text. I try to make this as simple as possible, and by rule, you're always supposed to have three points. So I've got three points, and uh, I'm joking about the rule. I I know (laughs) Would it make you all feel better if I had nine points? No? No? Okay. So three points to introduce the peace and the comfort of the disciples. They have comfort in the person of Christ, the object of their faith. They have comfort in the completed work of Christ, a place that He has prepared. And they have comfort in the hope of Christ, the event of His coming. All right? So His person a place, and an event, His coming. I want to just deal with these three real quickly and try to provide us with comfort in our times of trouble. First, there is comfort in the person of Christ. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Is that true of everyone sitting here? Now, does that word believe, what does that mean? I believe, there, I believe God exists. Is that what that means? You trust God, right? You have believed on Him. You believe God. Believe also in me. This is Christ, the object of our simple faith. Simple faith or trust in the living God has always been a sufficient source for stability. I like the song we sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. There's stability there. Uh, if you're trusting yourself, you're going to fall. In fact, uh, what, what is it they say about someone who acts as their own eternity, who has a fool as a client? <laughs> uh, right? You never heard that? All right, so... Uh, so you might, might say, he that trusts his own, or as the proverb says, he that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Uh, you can't trust yourself. You're not, you can't trust the arm of flesh. Uh, you can't trust the preacher, as good as, 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 good as your, the preacher might be. Uh, uh, you can't, but, but you can trust and believe God, and you can trust and believe Christ. Uh, if you have that as your foundation, you are already well on your way to, to stabilizing the seeming imbalances around you. I would notice here, Christ equates himself and our faith and trust in God. He equates himself as being equal with God. You see that, right? You believe in God. 
that trust and faith that you have in God, have that same trust and faith in me. Uh, you just can't go on. This is, this is the heart of our Christian faith. He, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is an instance in which he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And if he would have said this in front of the Pharisees, like they did before, they would have picked up stones to stone him right there. You believe in God, believe also in me. He equates himself as equal with God. We are not to have a troubled heart due to the fact that God and Christ are the objects of our faith. No mere man could say this. People always saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be divinity. What is he claiming here? Amen? And I rarely even hear this passage brought up as proof of, proof of the divinity of Christ. But what is he claiming here? If this was me standing up in here saying, you believe in God, believe also in Jason Tackett, you all would probably run me out of here on a rail. Right? And rightly so, because that's blasphemy. I'm equating myself with God. But Jesus here in this popular passage that we quote time and time again is equating himself as equal to God. As the equal object of faith. God and Christ are objects of our faith. In the English here, it reads like an imperative. Believe also in me. Uh, however, both the belief in God and belief in Christ are, both, are not imperatives. They are indicatives. You should not allow your hearts to be troubled, in other words, because you believe in God and also you believe in me. Is really kind of how we would get the imperative idea, or not the imperative, the indicative idea out of this text. He's saying, this is what you've done. You've trusted God, and you have come to put your trust and your faith in me. And that's enough. Is that where you are? Have you fully trusted in the God of the Scriptures? And have you fully trusted in His Christ? If so, the comfort and the first part of this verse is yours. Amen? To believe in one God, one true God, that's monotheism, is not sufficient. Also, we see that truth right here. You believe in God? He didn't say, he didn't say let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God and then go to the next verse. He says, believe also in me. Uh, monotheism is not enough. James says, you believe there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe that, and they tremble. People will say, well, people, when you talk to them about the state of their soul, well, I believe in God. Well, so? That's not the faith that is being presented to you by Christ here in this text. To believe and trust Christ is the fullness of the revelation of God. The question before you, if you want peace is what do you think of Christ? Amen? What do you think of Christ? That's the sure foundation. You can take the term God here as either the Father, 
You believe in the Father, believe also in me. Or you can take it as the general one being of God, and I hate to even say it like that. But either way, Christ becomes the necessary full expression of true faith. And the confession of that faith. Monotheism alone, though true, can answer, cannot answer the sinful need of your heart. Your neediness. It cannot give you hope. Believing that there is one God, believing on God, does not reconcile you to God unless you also believe in Christ. One cannot say, as Christ did, that he did not see himself as being the necessary object of our faith. McLaren said this in his commentary. Christ here points to himself as the object of precisely the same religious trust which is to be given to God. That's clear in the text, right? Christ says, I'm the object of your faith. I'm the object of your religious trust. You believe in God? Let that same trust be put in me. Post-Christian heresies wish to ignore and pro- ignore this truth and proclaim monotheism absent Christ to make Christ as something less than God and less than the object of our trust in God and say that it is sufficient. What is Islam but this very truth? Christ was a good man. But belief in one God is what you is all you need. And they deny the very words that Christ says. You believe in God, believe also in me. There's many other post-Christian heresies. The Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and say God or Christ is Christ, God alone is the object of our faith. Christ is just and then put whatever they want after that. Christ is just this or just that. Christ is just the angel Michael or something like that. But Jesus equated faith in God with faith in himself. And that is what's enough. Christ is our confidence. Christ commended this confidence to us. Christ did not say, believe in monotheism, believe in monotheism. Christ said, believe on me. Christ said, come to me, and I'll never cast you out. Is that a description of your faith? McLaren went on to say, and proclaim the obvious truth that Faith in Christ and faith in God are not two, but one faith. That is not the meaning of the text. That word also is is meant to be the fulfillment of the first part and not an addition to it. We're talking about one faith. If If we read the Old Testament fairly, if we read the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets fairly, They do not deny the faith in Christ. They expect it. They expect that one is coming. A prophet like unto Moses. uh, one, One suffering in our place. By the way, 
Orthodox Judaism is a false faith. I want to say that to people say, well, they're the, our big brother in faith and, we're, and we came along. No, if you reject Christ, you reject the Old Testament. Amen? It's, it's an apostasy from the truth. It's not the faith of Abraham. It's not the faith of Moses. It's not the faith of David. What we have today is the faith of Abraham, the faith of Moses, the faith of David, the ones that looked for Christ. It's not two faiths. It's one faith. There's a singleness of faith. And by the way, I want to put this out there too, that a theistic proof, we don't, we're, I, I know people that are out there that are just trying to get people to believe in God. If we could just get people to believe in God, a theistic proof doesn't get us there. We declare Christ. Believe everything that God has said and now believe Christ who is the fulfillment of all that He has said. Uh, Much of modern apologetics uh, wants to present us with the idea that God simply exists and somehow that's enough. That's not where this text leaves us. You believe in God? Believe also in Christ. So we're not presenting theism, we're presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole of everything that we stand upon. I want us to look at here. We, we often go over text, but read verse 1 again, and then read how this is translated by, our, by the apostles. Let not, your heart be, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Have peace. Okay, now I'm going to go to one place of many, and that is Philippians chapter 1. And this is indicative of a lot of things. A lot of what the apostles have to say. Philippians 1 verse 2. How is this translated to how the early Christians believed and taught and spoke? Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul started every one of his letters like this. I think Peter started his letters like this. I think the apostles spoke like this. I believe the church continuously formulated this very same thing that Christ was saying. Have peace through God and Jesus Christ. Amen? So, that's the first point. We have help for our troubled hearts because of the object of our faith, which is the person of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all that God has promised. Second, let's talk about a place, and I didn't realize time is running away from me. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. We have comfort in the completed work of Christ who has prepared us a place. I don't have to fear because I know whatever happens, I'm going to be received of my Lord. 
Here we have to ask, and I'm going to march through this somewhat slowly but quickly, all right? Here we have to ask, what is the house of the Father? The clues are in the text. It is a place. What we're talking about is a place. And, as it says in the King James, it has mansions. We'll talk about that here in a second, but... Now, Christ has used this term, the Father's house, before, but he was referring to an earthly temple. He says, he made a whip there in John chapter 2, he says, and starts tipping over tables and saying, my Father's house is supposed to be this, but you have made a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So, the temple on earth was referred to as being the Father's house, But we also know that their earthly temple answers to something far more glorious. There is a, it's only a temple, it's only a pattern of things in heaven in the book of Hebrews. Uh, And we also know that temple that he was speaking of there, he later would say, your house is left unto you desolate. And we get that picture there of 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 Ezekiel where the glory of the Lord is departing. It goes from over Jerusalem to outside the gates of Jerusalem to, to beyond. The glory of the Lord departed from them. It says in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen quoting the, uh, uh, the words of Solomon or, or what was said to Solomon, how be it the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands as Says, as says the prophet, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me? We talk about this being the Lord's house. This isn't what it's talking about, though. First of all, we're, we're the temple of the Lord, us, the people. He dwells among us. But the, not this building. There's nothing special or magic about this building or any place here on earth. The question we ask is, where does the Father dwell? And Christ is speaking of that greater reality. What did He say? We're, we're always confronted with this imagery in the Scriptures. Our Father, which art in heaven. Where's that? It's not here. It's where He is. He's in heaven. He's above us. He transcends. He's, he's all those things. Our Father, which art in heaven. Christ would later pray in John 17, 24, that they... He prayed to the Father that they might be us, we might be where He is. Where is Christ now? He's at the right hand of the Father. We're talking about a place here. We're not talking about a place here. (laughs) We're talking about a place there. The Lord is above. What's that? (laughs) That's neither, yeah. Um, We're talking about a place that before Christ we could never approach. We can build our tower as high as we want, but we wouldn't make it. But we're also talking about the object of hope. David finished his great 23rd Psalm by saying, And I shall dwell where? The house of the Lord. How long? Forever. It's a place of our hope. The way of the holiest place, the way to the holiest of all was not yet made, but Jesus was going to prepare a place. 
He, the Son, that word, this idea of the house of the Father, used many times, uh, Genesis 24, 7, for instance, talks about the place of His origin, place of one's origin. Christ came from above. He went back to the Father, chapter 13, verse 1. And He says, one day we will be able to follow. Why? Because He is preparing us a place. Now, let's talk about some of, the, some of these words here. Christ asserts that, as some translate as part of the semantical range, uh, uh, if you were to look at various ways this, this verse has been translated, uh, some of them will have rooms. All right? That's part of the semantical range of the word. Mane. It is actually the cognate of the word abide. It's the na- or the the word, the, the verb abide is this cognate uh, of this noun, mane. And some will translate it room. Here in our King James, it says mansions. That's also part of the semantical range of the word. Uh, so one way to translate it is to translate it rooms, and that's to talk about the great capacity that he has. And then we have the familiar reading of mansions and that kind of, those that want to lean more to talk about the splendor of it. In fact, that is actually the Latin Vulgate, uh, the Latin translation of the scriptures that uses the semantical side of mansions in it. And why? Because what do we get in these pictures of heaven? The streets of gold. Uh, we, 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 get all, we get this idea of the splendor of it and the new Jerusalem and all that. Uh, but, the word is only used as a noun one other time. There's only one other time that it is used as a noun. And if we have, if we have a sent one, one, one way to translate it, it says, look at the splendor of this, the splendor of mansions, mansions. And the other side of people are saying, look at how much room there is. Room enough for anybody who wants to come. There's a place for them. A multitude that no man can number. And, we, and sometimes we can get caught up in, in, in fights over translation. But look at this, 1423. This is the only other time that Christ, that the word is used as a noun. Now, now the verb cognate we're going to see a lot of, uh, especially in chapter 15 where he says, Abide in me and I in you and so on and so forth. But this is the only other time it's used as a noun. It says, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That word abode is this word here, mane. So we here we have the only other use of the word, and it's an important point here. Whatever we take this to mean. I like singing, I've got a mansion. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Just over the hilltop. And I would never say, stop saying that. Because it's part of the semantical range of the word. But what is important here is there is a place for us to abide. It, it will have splendor. And there's enough. For as many as want to come to Christ, there's enough room there for anyone who wants to come. But there's a place for us. There's a home. I have an, I have an abode. 
I got a home at earth, and the shingles keep blowing off of it. <laughs> but I have something that abides forever, that will abide forever, and I can abide forever there. I think it's important for us to see this abiding aspect that is meant to be drawn out of this word. I enjoy the splendor of it, and I enjoy the accessibility of it. And we can have translation debates all day long, but the abiding of it is glorious. Where does he dwell? He dwells in a high and holy place. And one day I will have a permanent place with him. Listen to Psalm 92, verse 13. He says, Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. There's an abiding there. And Christ emphasized the earnestness of what he says. He he, he here says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Isn't that interesting how he brings out this language? And uh, and I I don't want to belabor the the Greek here, but this is a second-class conditional sentence. If it were not so, that there is no home in heaven... And this is one of those contrary to fact, uh, contrary to fact conditional sentences. So he presents something that is not true, if it were not so, and then argues from that point. If it were not so, I would have told you. Why does he say this? This just seems like an interesting addition here. But why does he say that? Well, the Sadducees were very clear in the way they taught about heaven and the afterlife. They were going around saying there's no such thing. And they were teaching it. There's no angel, there's no afterlife, there's no resurrection, blah, blah, blah. Everybody knew. You know, everybody knew what Christ really taught. Christ had taught plainly, there is something. There's something more. There's something greater. And it's coming, and it's coming. I'm going to prepare it for you. it, it It is sure. There is a resurrection. The Son shall raise those that are His up in the last day, and they will be with Him, and no one will ever take them from Him. They have a permanent and abiding place. What is He saying in this conditional sentence is this. If it were not so, I would have clearly taught that. Contrary to fact. It was so because he did clearly teach it. He's our, we call him rabbi. They called him rabbi. Why? Because he was a great teacher. And this is what he clearly taught. We can trust in his veracity. We can trust the one who is the truth, who has proclaimed the truth in him. And it is based also on what he has done. I need to hurry. I know. Um, it is based also on what he was going to accomplish. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, does that mean he's up in heaven right now, like Brother Cameron used to say, with a holy hammer building us a mansion? Where was he headed? He was headed to a cross. How did he prepare you a place? On the cross. That's how he prepared you a place. Everything you need to have an abiding place with God was accomplished by Christ when he went away that very night. And he intended for them to follow. He says, I prepare you a place. He intended there to be a short, uh, a sure uh, thing. I go to prepare a place for you. That's going to be enough for you. What I am doing right now is going to be enough to get you there. Or as it says in Hebrews 6, and I'm trying to hurry, set before us, Uh, We have a sure hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
both sure and steadfast, and which enters into within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's entered into that place for us. He prepared a place for us there. The lamb slain for the foundation of the world in time has made it so. And then lastly, verse 3. I'm trying, I'm trying to just handle bigger, bigger uh, groups of Scripture. And now it's getting warm and I'm sweating and I feel like you all are going to doze off if I don't hurry. But I want to get to this third point. It's just a, it's just a quick point, only a page here. <laughs> then we have the comfort of Christ as the hope of our faith. Our hope is in His coming. By the way, eschatology, let's look at verse 14. This is eschatology here. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I don't know if you're a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I don't know if you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, or all-millennial. I don't know. But this this is eschatology. This is what the simple thing that we all believe Here we have another conditional sentence, another if. But this is what we would call a third conditional sentence where we go from the subjunctive to the world of possibilities to the indicative, the real, the affirming, the the things that we can truly affirm. It appears to meet the disciples as a point of their despair. What were they despairing about? You're going away. Oh no, we're undone. Right? Right? That's that big question marks. That's the subjunctive here. If I go away and prepare you a place, we get the indicative. I will come and receive you. That's what you can affirm by this. Not that you're undone because I'm going away, but you're saved because I'm going away. You're sure, and one day I'm going to come. I'm going to be here, and you're going to be mine, and you're going to be where I am. That's the construction. We go from the uncertain to the certain. They had this great uncertainty about him going away, and he meets them there, and he says, okay, if I go away and prepare this place, everything's going to be all right. The condition, if met, logically concludes the indicative. We have the present, and we have the present tense. He says, he says, he literally, we, we translate it because that's how it that, that's how it flows naturally to say, I will come, but he says, I am coming. Present tense. Behold, I come quickly. Present tense. He's on his way. And he's been on his way for 2,000 years. And one day it's going to be reality. It's going to be a fact. But he's coming. It's not one day he will come. He, he is coming. And this is the future tense. I will receive you. And that's why the apostle could pray at the end, Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Come now. That's why Paul could say, I got a desire to depart. Some people will, some people like to say, "Well, his coming here was he's going to come after the resurrection, and he's going to talk to him. He's going to give him the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the earnest." No, he's still in the context of a place of us being where he is. 
This is the second coming. This is our hope. And it's coming. This is the eschatology of the Christian. This is the faith of the Christian. This is the hope of the Christian. He will come. He will take us unto himself. That is the necessary consequence. If he died, if he went away, he's going to come again. If he secured our salvation, he will secure our salvation. Yet. This is the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. The coming of the Spirit in a sense, was a coming to Christ, but it wasn't the fullness of this. That was just a down payment. You and I have a foretaste of it because we have the Holy Spirit. But one day we'll have the fullness. He will come. He will receive us. And where, we, where He is, we will be. And as Paul would later say to the Philippians, or not the Thessalonians, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And as we take the Lord's Supper today, if someone wants to go down and just uh, go ahead and bring the, uh, the, the babies up or, or tell, the, tell the nursery to come on up. Uh, but as we take the Lord's Supper today, uh, this is the exact thing, same thing in this context that he was talking about. I'm going away. I'm going to be absent. But one day I'm going, you're going to eat it new with me. With me. Where I am, you're going to be. This is that aspect that is brought out. And I pray that it's been a comfort to you all this morning as we present this trauma-informed care of Christ. Yes, brother. Yeah, study last things. I will go ahead and prepare the Lord's Supper.